Welcome to the Teaching Race Matters podcast from the Runnymede Trust, the UK's leading race equality think tank. This podcast seeks to explore what it means to teach race, migration and empire in schools. We will be interviewing academics, teachers and practitioners as we explore Britain's history of migration and anti-racist activism, as well as the actions being taken in schools across the UK to diversify the curriculum. Writing in the publication Teaching History, Martin Spafford and Dr. Elias ask, why are Rosa, Martin and Malcolm far more familiar to many students than Paul Stevenson or Jaya Ben-Desai? In this episode, we focus on the histories of anti-racism in the UK and our own civil rights history. We talk about why so much of it has been forgotten, what is missing and why it matters that these subjects are taught today. I am delighted to be joined by Martin Spafford, a former head of history in a London school, and Dr. Hannah Ishmael, a senior teaching fellow at UCL and an archivist at the Black Cultural Archives. And later in this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Hakim Adi, who is a British historian and scholar specialising in African affairs. So Martin... We mentioned two people in the introduction who were key figures in British anti-racism. Would you be able to describe who Jaya Ben-Desai and Paul Stevenson were? Yeah, sure. I mean, Jaya Ben-Desai was working in a photo processing factory um, in um, 1976 in Wilsdon in West London. And she was one of a large workforce, pre predominantly of Asian women and men, um, who were working under very, very difficult conditions. Um, their pay, their working conditions. And in common with many other um, migrant workers in previous decades, um, they took action against the treatment by their employer. And there's a wonderful... Um, Jai Bendisai ended up as being very much the leader of an action being taken by a whole group of workers. And, and one of the things they were fighting for was union recognition. Now, in previous... Um, actions, similar actions, in places like Imperial Typewriter in, 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 in Leicester, for example, the, um, the, one of the difficulties that, that um, Asian and African and African Caribbean workers had had was a lack of support from their unions. But one of the things that made this one significant was um, it was in a context in which there was a rise particularly of far-right politics was an organization called the National Association for Freedom that actually, they, they're now the Taxpayers Alliance and they, they, um, they supported the employer. Jeb and Desai is, became very much a, a, a leader of the struggle and, and was a very charismatic personality. She was, you know, she looked like everybody's mother, auntie or grandmother. Um, she had a, a kind of, she had this kind of authority um, she spoke very, very strongly. And there's a wonderful quotation from her when she said that, you know, um, that the employer treated them like monkeys. But she said, we are not monkeys. We are the lions. Um, and in fact, it became for two years, this, this, this strike, although it did not succeed in achieving the objectives, what it did succeed in doing for a first time 
is bringing a wider trade union movement in support of black and brown workers who are taking action for their case. And it, and it, and it was really important in being, it was, it was a situation where brown and black workers pushed for and gained the recognition of the wider trade union movement and therefore with the working class movement that the interests of black workers were also the interests of the wider working class, wider workers. And that's what makes it important. And that's what's commemorated in the wonderful mural in Wilston now that commemorates that action. Paul Stevenson was a black Briton born in London, born in Forest Gate, um, who um, therefore pre-Windrush in that sense. And Paul Stevenson was a, uh, a youth and community worker who moved from London to Bristol and was a community worker in Bristol when it became apparent that the Bristol Bus Company was refusing to employ, with the support of the trade union, was refusing to employ um, uh, black and Asian drivers and conductors on their buses. And the law allowed them to do that. Um, and this was one of the issues we explored. This is another case of, of, of um, struggling for rights in, in the face of a law which allowed discrimination to take place. So what Paul Stevenson did is he, um, he, he rings up the bus company and he, is, he was extremely well-spoken. Paul had a very, you know, if, if you didn't see him, you, you might think that he's a middle-class white man. And he, he rings up the bus company and asks if there are um, vacancies. And they say that there are vacancies for drivers. And so then one of the men who wanted to work there, Guy Bailey, is sent, they ask him Guy Bailey's name. The, the, the employers and the bus company didn't know that from listening to his name, that in fact Guy Bailey was a black man. And then Guy Bailey, they say, well, yes, we've got a job for him. But Guy Bailey then turns up. And when they see who he is, they refuse to give him the position. And so Paul and Guy Bailey and Roy Hackett and others organized the Bristol bus boycott. And it was a boycott that started in the black community centered around St. Paul's, um, where they refused to use the buses and then got the support particularly of the students of Bristol University and of various others, including Tony Benn, who was then a Bristol MP. Um, and the bus boycott's objective was to overturn the policy of the bus company. In the face of opposition to their action from many of the white workers, we have to say, um, who were working on the buses. Um, eventually, they succeeded. Um, the matter went to Parliament, and they succeeded in changing the bus company's position. And in fact, the bus company employed their first non-white driver, who was an Asian driver, and they capitulated on the day of the March on Washington in 1963 in, um, in, 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 in the United States when Martin Luther King, where Martin Luther King is famous for what's referred to as his high have a dream speech. Um, and that was a crucial event also because what it established was in both these cases that what is established is that the rights of black workers, sorry, the rights of black workers to um, have the equal opportunities to white workers in terms of pay, condition, and employment, um, and establishing this as a struggle that was led by black workers themselves. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, as Martin so eloquently described, 
these were both struggles that were going on at a certain time in the 1960s in post-war Britain. Could you give some of the broader context for what these struggles for justice were in terms of the broader political landscape? Broader political landscape. As um, Martin was speaking about Paul Stevenson, one of the things that we often think about is is this kind of uh, spectre of the Windrush generation. So this idea that um, black, mainly black Caribbean, black African people came to Britain in the 1940s. But as um, Martin was talking about, there were black communities here prior to that. But we recognise the Windrush as this moment where greater migration happens. So in terms of... uh, people from the Caribbean, people from um, the continent, the Indian continent and the African continent coming to Britain, they then came into and faced massive hostility around their presence, um, which is a bit strange given the British Empire and the idea that kind of uh, Britons were comfortable with the idea of empire, but not comfortable with the idea of people then coming to Britain. As um, Sivanandan says, we, you know, we are here because you were there, that kind of really important statement. So in terms of kind of coming in, they saw and were kind of had hostility on in all the kind of areas of kind of civic life. So hostility around housing, difficulties around housing, around gaining housing. Uh, there's people talking about what was known as the, um, the colour tax. So people trying to find houses, uh, either they suddenly, as um, Martin was saying around jobs, they certainly didn't exist or they had to pay much higher rents than white um than white British people would have had to, uh, issues around education, um, and that becomes a kind of a huge political movement in the 70s and 80s, issues around policing, which, you know, definitely uh, still live with today. I mean, all these issues we still live with today, but policing, obviously, as we know, becomes a really major point from the 1980s. Issues around employment, as Martin was speaking about. So basically, every kind of moment where you have interactions with people or interactions with the state, there are huge issues and and barriers for uh, African, Caribbean and Asian people just to live their lives in the way they want to. And just to pick up on the broader political context here that we're talking about, uh, Martin, you mentioned the colour bar in relation to what Paul Stevenson was campaigning against and eventually, you know, they, they had a victory against. But what was going on in terms of the broader sort of legislative framework at that time uh, that made it so difficult for black and ethnic minority people to get jobs, get housing, get education. And what changed um, to stop that? I think one of the kind of issues when you look at Britain is that it's, it's, it's a complicated gray area when you talk about legislation. You know, in the USA, you can, you can tell the story of some of it by being, you know, campaigning against segregation laws in the, in the, in the South. Um, but, but in Britain, overtly, the colour bar apparently often did not exist. Yeah, you're but fighting against in, an absence rather yeah. than a presence. So as Martin was saying, there, there are there is active legislation in the US that says, you know, what black people can and cannot do. Whereas in the UK, that legislation doesn't exist, but it's, you know, it's kind of what is kind of this happens on the streets. So you can't fight against something that doesn't necessarily, or you can, but you know, that kind of barrier is there, but you can't, I mean, the you can't habit, speak to it. There are cases, you know, like in the 1920s when you have an explicit legislative colour bar for um, merchant seamen, for example. But when, if you look at this post-Second World War period, on the one hand, you have the 1948 um, Act, 
which states quite clearly that people coming from the Caribbean, from West Africa, from um, the, the um, Indian subcontinent, that they are British citizens. And that, uh, it, 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 from 1948 to 62, that is the situation. Legally, they are British citizens. But however, there, is, there are no laws to stop employers choosing not to employ black people or to stop landlords choosing not to allow them to, 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 to have accommodation. Speaking of accommodation, sorry, Martin may know the date better than me because dates are not my forte. But um, speaking of like, the, the accommodation, there's the, the famous um, Leary Constantine um, case of the hotel. So I think this was just during the war, during the war in the 1940s. So Leary Constantine, cricketer and one of the first um, peers in the House of, uh, black peers in the House of Lords, um, takes a case against a, a hotel called the Midland Hotel. So he checks in, he's, he's working for the government at this time, he checks in and the, the um, person in reception takes one look at him and says, as a black man, you and your family cannot stay here. And he says, yes, we can. And then he takes the, um, takes the hotel to court and wins. Um, and I don't know what, what precedent it sets exactly, but as Martin was saying, before that, there was no, no law to say that you couldn't do that. And, but also in his case, the, the management hotel say, well, we don't mind, but we don't want to upset our American guests. Um, but I think a, a, a really interesting case in context of this is Asquith Xavier. Asquith Xavier in the early 60s, he's a, um, a, a railway worker and he's working, I don't remember which station, I think it was Paddington, but he applies for a job at Euston Station. And he, I, I, I might be wrong about Paddington, but he applies for a job at Euston Station and he is explicitly told that he cannot have the job because he's black. And at that point, there is no, there's no law, there's no law saying that that the that, that the British Rail can't do that. The law just doesn't say things. Um, and so, and what he does is he he, uh, he he does a very lonely struggle, because the management at Euston Station claimed that if they employed him, they would upset the white workers. And so, and he takes that case up, and he fights for it, and he fights a lonely battle. But he 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 gains support. Um, his family much later did, discovered the extent of the racist abuse he got for fighting that case that they didn't know at the time. Um, and eventually he wins and eventually he, he succeeds in gaining that. And very soon after that, um, laws are passed to prevent um, that kind of overt discrimination. So what you have to do in, um, in, in Britain is you have to fight to have laws that establish your rights, whereas in the USA it was to fight against laws that explicitly deny it. But then legislation did come. So we're talking about the Race Relations Act of 1968, in which an act of parliament did make it illegal to refuse housing, employment or public services to a person on the grounds of their colour, race, ethnic or national origins. What significance did that have? Did it change things in the way that it needed to be changed? Yes and no. <laughs> it's one of those like obviously like, really nuanced uh, things that we've been talking about. I think as as Mar says, it establishes it establishes rights, but then you know we have subsequent um, amendments to it, so it didn't it didn't go far enough. Um, and one thing that we haven't really spoken about so far is how that law came into being because of again more campaigning by organizations such as the um card campaign against racial discrimination so it's not like it was just came in because of the goodness of the 
goodness of the government, but it get more kind of struggles, more fights to to um, to enable that to happen. Um, well, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the sixty-five uh, legislation is that some of the first people to be um, imprisoned under the race relations acts are Black Power national, uh, Black Power. Black Power advocates, because you know, there it's used to shut down people like Obig Bunner, who was one of the first people to be um, Obig Bunner, and also um, uh, Michael X, who is complicated, but he's you know, you know, one of the, some, some of the first people to be actually like. So, will you describe just what that what happened in the sixty five Act and how that related to the imprisonment of Black Power? I, I can try, not my area. <laughs> But super hazy. But my understanding is that so the 1965 Act was brought in, um, and it kind of put uh, precedents around what you can and cannot say. So you can't incite, you know, as as often uh, we we talk about today, you can't incite uh, racial violence. Um, and so uh, I believe, hold on a second, is it Obi Bunner who was the first person, or was it Michael X? I can't remember which one. But um, edit this bit out <laughs> but um basically uh in fighting uh for recognition of um black rights and black pa- and black activism um they were arrested and put into prison for kind of inciting this idea of inciting racial violence against white people um rather than it being used to kind of protect uh black people and how i guess it was envisioned when people were fighting for that act uh, i mean i can add this, this- there were a number of race relations acts, the 65 Act and then the 68 Act and then the 76 one that set up the, the Commission for Racial Equality. But it's a very, I think it's a very interesting thing. They, those acts happen at the same time as there are tighter immigration laws. And at the time that the Labour government set, um, brought in the 1965 Act, which most certainly did, in, did improve the situation for people who were here already, who were already settled, did make forms of discrimination, for example, in housing and employment, illegal. And that was a step, an important step forward. However, you know, at the time, um, Roy Hattersley, who was deputy leader of the Labour Party, well, I think he was later deputy leader, but Roy Hattersley in 1965 said, without integration, limitation is excusable. And without limitation, integration is impossible. In other words, the view of the politicians was, if you are going to have an integrated society, you have to restrict any more immigration. So uh, the Race Relations Act improved the situation for people already settled, but alongside with tighter immigration laws, it actually, at that time, the law made it more difficult for people intending to come. And one group very important in that are the families of men who were working in Britain, who had migrated to Britain, expecting eventually to return. And this was especially true of those coming from um, uh, India and Pakistan, and what was later uh, uh, Bangladesh, who then have to make the decision, do we bring our families in or not before the law is enacted? I'm talking about the the 62 Immigration Act. The 62 Immigration Act and the 65 Race Relation Acts don't happen separately from each other. They, they are all part of the same process. But I think you, you make a really good point about this idea, and this is something that is, is spoken about, particularly from the 1940s, it's the idea that increased migration creates racism rather than increased migration 
highlights the racism that's already there. So from the 1940s, almost before the Windrush docks, there is this fear and anxiety about what's going to happen when increased um, people of, of colour enter Britain. And that, then that, uh, we see this throughout the 1940s into the 1950s with um, the 1958 um Notting Hill and Nottingham race riots where black communities are being attacked by, you know, what are known as the teddy boys. And then all of the language is about how the presence of black people have brought racism into the country rather than, let's say, rather than, it, rather than existing. And then the, so the migration and the immigration, um, legislation, the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act that Martin talks about, is a way of tightening that and trying to kind of solve these race relations, what's what's known as these race relations issues by not allowing more people to come in. And, and as Martin said, it actually has the opposite effect because, you know, between 1948 and 1962, we essentially had free movement around around the empire. One of the things about the 1948 Act, which I find fascinating, is that it was enacted specifically to, um, well, with the intention of allowing more white settlers to come back to Britain. So the what were known as the Dominion, so Canada, South, South Africa, um, and Australia. So the idea was to make it a bit easier for uh, Britain, I guess, to be repopulated from people who'd otherwise migrated. But what they didn't foresee was how um, uh, other parts of the empire would, would take that opportunity to come. And so... The 1962 Act, as, as Martin said, most people had intended to come, work for a few years, and then go back, go back to the Caribbean, go back to Africa, go back to all parts in West Africa, um, go back to India. But the 1962 Act, as Martin says, makes forces people to decide, forces people, and you see the numbers increasing before the 1962 Act because people decide we're not in a position to go back because Britain is not what they were expecting. It's not the quote quote motherland, mother country that people were, were expecting. And so then the numbers grow up and children start coming in and families start having to settle because that idea, that, that movement is actually cut, is cut out. So had they not enacted the 62 Act, who knows, more people may have kind of gone, gone back. So they were here to stay as of 1962 and sort of here to fight as well, fight for their rights fight for their right to exist in this country free of discrimination. And so five years after the 62 Act in 1967, the British Black Power Movement really started emerging in London. Um, and, you know, Stokely Carmichael, the American Black Radical, came to speak at a gathering in Camden. Um, and there was a huge movement organizing against prejudice, against the sort of prejudice that you've just described. Um, and I'm wondering if you could describe what was going on there amongst all of these other things, the Race Relations Act, increasing in immigration, immigration controls. Um, how, how does the British Black Power Movement fit into that? I think one of the important um, points, as, as you mentioned, Stokely Carmichael, that this idea of, of, of fighting has a much longer history. It's not like the Black Power Movement, the Black Liberation Movements just spring up from nowhere. So Stokely Carmichael, um, I like to claim as a person of Caribbean origin. His family, I think, are from Trinidad, and then they moved to the States. And um, I'm also think that his family were also part of the Garvey movement of the 1930s. So one of these kind of key Pan-African movements that um, were 
fighting for liberation, fighting for for what I guess we could think of as an early form of black power, black liberation. So it's not like um, people just suddenly popped up with these kind of radical um, radical ideas. It, it's a kind of a long long lineage. So people like Stokely Carmichael, whilst they are fighting in new ways, are drawing on that kind of pan-African heritage around thinking through through fighting because there are lots of um, uprisings, lots of um, anti, anti-racist, anti, um, anti-capitalist uh, organizing in, in the Caribbean in the 1930s. So quite a lot of the people who come in the early part either were a part of those movements, so people like John LaRose, um, or have family who were part of that. So they already have this consciousness around um, anti-colonial activity anti-racist activity so when they come to the UK it is a different um it is a, a different context but it's not like they're just springing up with these with this consciousness from nowhere um so I think the black the black power movement does does represent um a different kind of idea of organizing much more to some extent radical much more confrontational but it's not it's not kind of a new thing um and also it kind of it they, they link into the other kind of movements of the 1960s, you know, kind of the, the kind of long 1968, much more kind of anti-imperialist, other kind of radical movements that are happening at the time. And it connects across, across the diaspora. It's not just happening, you know, Carmichael, he's based in the States, but he comes to the UK and he finds that kind of um, interest. And other, other members of the Black Liberation movements, the Black Power movements, also from, from the continent of Africa as well. So it's kind of people coming together and bringing their different, um, different contexts together to kind of fight on one front, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, just a little bit to add to um, what what Hannah explained really clearly. I think that's a really important thing that the movements in the 70s, who can, I think the leadership were a mixture. Many, there were were people who either had direct experience of living under colonialism in Africa, Caribbean, India, or their parents had direct experience. So they had a very clear connection. And so the, the, the movements, in, particularly in the, in the 70s, are very rooted in anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, and that heritage. Again, that's a distinction with um, the, the US civil rights struggle. But it's, it's a distinction that clearly Stokely Carmichael understood. The other factor is that we're not in a context, it's not a situation where the 1970s are the first time in which there is organized, direct physical struggle in, happening in Britain. And you go right back to 1919, um, when you have the, um, the, the events in the, in, the, in the port cities, Liverpool, um, Cardiff, South Shields and others, um, where you have actually um, black people have to defend themselves and defend their communities against racist attack. So there is a, there is a, a knowledge and a heritage, both, both and, and, and many of those black people in those situations in 1919 were merchant seamen who had themselves had, had lived in the colonized countries, colonized by Britain. And that's, I think, crucial to that particular movement. Linked, of course, with, with, with Marxism in many of those cases, um, black power movement, um, as the black power movement in the USA, saw itself as very, very linked to revolutionary struggle. But I should also say that a lot of other things were going on in anti-racism in the the 1970s too. And and we'd be wrong to see the anti-racist struggle in Britain as being only about 
sort of going out into the streets. There were people fighting through the courts, but there were also people fighting in other ways. Parents trying to deal with what was happening educationally in schools to their children. Um, families um, just, you know, surviving by, through entrepreneurship, you know, setting up a corner shop or starting a business. Um, uh, ev all sorts of different the movements through the arts, you know. Um, the, the, the importance of, of, of music and the arts in developing senses of identity and belonging that was British. So you have a British reggae identity, which is hugely influenced by the Jamaican reggae identity, for example. Um, uh, you know, um, groups like Steel Pulse in, 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 Bricks, in, in Birmingham that actually use reggae music to comment about the political situation in this country and looking at how that works with reference across both to the Caribbean and to the USA, but with a sense of it being of, of, of anti-imperialism and the importance of music and art and also of writing, of the writings of people, you know, ranging from Samuel Selvon to Bucci and Machado and all these writers who, and then, and then later Andrew Levy, who talks about the experience of coming after the Second World War from the Caribbean. All of these are ways in which anti-racist struggle happens. Um, it happens as a mixture of different forms of struggle by different people, some lonely, some people just saying, I'm going to fight for my job. Others organized through things like the British Black Panther movement and the, and the British, um, uh, 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 British Black Power. Or, but others who were working, for example, through political organizations, black sections in the, in the Labour Party, for example, and others. It's very diverse and that makes it interesting. Absolutely. And I think this is something that is very clear from both of you, that these are a diverse set of movements that also have a diverse set of origins. You know, they don't all just start and spring up, as you say, in the 60s and 70s. They come from historical antecedents, the Pan-African movement, uh, communications with diasporas across the world as well. It's not just a question of one single organizing force. And there's an intellectual base. You have writers like Fanon, who were who were really important intellectually. Have people like 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 Stuart Hall at that in, in those periods developing ideas about and, Walter Rodney, absolutely Walter Rodney very very important um, and and so you know the writers that that are that understand what is happening in the metropole in the context of and and inspired by the experience in the colony. And you also colonies. have writers like C.L.R. James, who act as bridges between these two. So um, someone like C.L.R. James, who was very active in the 1930s, um, also spending time in London in his later years with people like Darkest Howe and kind of uh, being organizing reading groups and kind of yeah. using his, his experience and his knowledge to give a kind of a, not, not just C.L.R. James, but to kind of give further intellectual kind of scaffolding around some of the work that the um, people involved in Black Power and Black, Black, Black Liberation are doing. So they're not just fighting. It's not like a knee-jerk reaction. There are kind of serious um, knowledges that are being produced around it as well. Someone who sort of brings together that, that the intellectual, the activist and culture would be Claudia Jones and, and, and the story of kind of how the Nottingham Carnival develops which is actually sort of brings together many aspects of all of those. Vasa, we'd love to hear about that. <laughs> if you could tell us about that and, and how that brings all of this together. Well, I mean, 
Claudia Jones's story, Claudia Jones, who is, who's, whose um, origins are in the Caribbean, but then also in the United States, and then comes to, to, to live in, in, in West London. Um, I think we need to make it clear that she was deported to London. She was deported. She was deported. From the USA. From the US. Yes. I mean, very yeah, good, you know, we have to really good. think about, not, not to try to read, but to no. think about our language. And, you know, yeah, she, 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 I don't know if it was her choice. She was deported. She was deported as a political activist. So she is a political activist who's deported. And um, I'm going to defer to, to Hannah on this because I've forgotten the name of the the newspaper that she sets up. It's West Indian Gazette. The West Indian Gazette. She sets up the West Indian Gazette. Um, and um, do you know what? I'm going to let you talk about Lodia Jones because you'll do a better job than me. So yeah, and so Claudia Jones was born in Trinidad, um, went to the went to New York as a young as a young girl with her mother. Um, her mother dies, I think, when she's quite young, and Claudia um, has uh, develops like health health problems. So I think she develops like um, I think TB, but I'm not sure, but like a, a lung a lung problem, which which would plague her for the rest of her life. Um, <clears throat> she becomes involved in the Communist Party, so involved in communist activism and organising. She's a really good friend of Paul Robeson and that kind of communist um, work in 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 the states in the kind of uh, 40s and 50s. But she, due to her work, she gets imprisoned quite a few times, and in one of her kind of longer um, stays, it oh, stays imprisonment, uh, she, she uh, exa exacerbates her kind of um, health conditions. Then um, under the McCarthy era, she is, she goes, um, she's tried. And then instead of being imprisoned again, she is deported from this, from the United States. Initially, she um, was going to go back to Trinidad, but Trinidad still being a colonial, um, a colonial country, uh, the, um, the colonial powers in Trinidad say absolutely not. She is not coming back here because they're already having their early, well, not their early, but they're already having their anti-colonial movement. So the, the fear is that if she goes back to Trinidad, she will kind of she will be, be become a figurehead and she will kind of stir up additional anti-colonial movements in Trinidad. So eventually, she comes to the comes to the um, comes to England, where she continues organising. As Martin said, she um, she founds the West Indian Gazette, which is not the first, but one of the early Black British newspapers, which is dedicated to kind of talking about Black British arts and culture and heritage. And that's run from Brixton, um, and then she gets involved in uh, the 1958 race uh, race riots. So she developed. She, so her, her idea to kind of bring together Black and white people is to hold an indoor carnival in St Pancras Town Hall in 1959, which is often seen as one of the origins of, of Notting Hill Carnival. It, it is a little bit debated about kind of who is the true originator of carnival, but she's definitely one of the kind of early um, antecedents to that. And then that, that carnival kind of continues on and off, I think, during the 1960s. Um, unfortunately, she dies really young because of her... Um, because of her health condition, so she dies in 1964. Um, and she doesn't, one of the things about Claudia Jones is she doesn't really leave much of an archive. So where, so people have been using her writings, using what they can find about her to kind of re, uh, reconstitute her life to a, to, to a point. But yeah, she doesn't really leave very many kind of archival traces. So it becomes kind of difficult to know for certain. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, the, the St Pancras Town Hall Carnival, the indoor carnival, is 
asserting the an, a cultural identity and a right to belong in the face of the 1958 riots, which were... So 1958 riot is asserting a cultural identity and a right to belong in the face of the 1958 riots and seeing that a way of responding to this is to respond to it through celebration. And, and, and then, then as, as, um, as Hannah says, it's, it's a little bit debatable because a few years later, the first street carnival happens um, in Notting Hill. And, um, but that, that may be the first of what we now have as the carnival, but it, it picks up that idea of the assertion of belonging in the streets being through marching in the streets to a steel band. And right up to the present day, if you, you know, now that the Notting Hill Carnival is this huge sort of um, cultural, but also huge media event, you'll still see that the mass bands that perform with, with the, and the costumes behind the floats, that they, so often the statements that they are making are about um, cultural heritage and political action of one kind and another. That tradition remains. Um, and it is a takeover of the streets that is a way of saying we will celebrate our presence and our right to be present and our belonging. And in that way, I think, you know, you have to see um, anti-racism and anti-racist struggles in Britain, as the cultural context of it is very important um, as a contribution to the political struggle. I mean, we've covered some key figures in this in this story. We've covered figures like Claudia Jones. Uh, we've talked about uh, Paul Stevenson, Jayabed Desai, each of whom have their own impressive and significant uh, sort of marked play in our anti-racist history, um, but whose stories are often being left out. Um, and these are the broader stories that, you know, really need to be heard in our classrooms, but are sometimes omitted. Um, what do you think happens when they are omitted? And why is it so important that these stories are included in our schools? Partly they're omitted on purpose. I think sometimes there is a, a, a deliberate desire to create a kind of a sense of amnesia, a sense of having to start again. And I think one of, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Stokely Carmichael um, and his legacies and his antecedents is that it, it, it seeks to um, divorce people from this kind of radical history. And then it, you can't make change if you're spending all of the time having to start again. And I think that's why it's really important that we include them because it gives... Um, people the tools um, to continue these anti-racist struggles because you don't, have, you don't have to start again you don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time you can go back you can read you can kind of draw on the thinking that people have already done and people have already been through without having to as I say start again um, in schools obviously it's really important because otherwise people don't have a sense of themselves and I think I um working at the Black Cultural Archives. That's why we were founded. We were founded to provide resources for mainly African-Caribbean and African children to get a sense of identity without constantly being barded with negative stereotypes or only ever seeing yourself as a person who has been enslaved. Okay, there were two questions there, really. What, why is it important and why is it traditionally not being taught in schools in the way that the US civil rights movement has. I'll, I'll take that, that second one first, I think. I think there are lots of different reasons why it hasn't. I think some of those are just because of the, the strange way in which um, 
what gets taught in history lessons in schools happens. And sometimes it's a, it's a process of you teach what you're comfortable with, what you know, what you find the resources about and so on. I think it has to be said that quite a lot of work was happening in, in school history in the 1970s and 80s, which did include looking at some of these histories. Often when um, you, know, you had local authority teacher centers, they got together and created these things. And then it sort of stopped in the 1990s and 2000s. And I think there is a political context to that. Both Labour and Tory governments had agendas around our history. The Labour government agenda was sort of, we are now this very happy multicultural society. And in a sense, these things are solved. And I think, I'm, I'm, I'm generalising here, and I think a, a Cameron government one was, we want to go back to celebrating the glory of empire and, and you know, our, our, our traditions. And neither of those gave space, very much space, for this story. But I think there's another reason that the, the US civil rights story, which has been very widely taught over the last 20, 30 years in schools and examined in examination courses, is something that um, I think it was easy for teachers to see this as a sort of simple story that with a beginning, a middle and an end. You know, you kind of start with, it, with Emmett Till and you end up with Obama. Um, and, 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 and things are, you know, it's a resolved. And if you just, just tell the story within the context, so sort of with a, like, I mean, I've had it characterized to me by an American once, there's the danger of it being Rosa Parks sat down, Martin Luther King had a dream, Obama became president, things are fine. We can no longer see American history in that context. In the events of the last four or five years, the Trump presidency, the, and then the, the, the Black Lives Matter, and the fact that, that uh, uh, you know, um, uh, assassination, police assassinations of, of black people are now seen and visible thanks to mobile phones. All of those things have made a lot of these things different, and in Britain too. So, but I think that there was this view that the British story was more complicated that it was, it's, it's an unresolved story. And it is an unresolved story. And I think that's what makes, one of the reasons that makes it so important and interesting to tell, because it all has an imp implication about how we are living now. These questions are still being, we haven't resolved our story of empire. We haven't resolved our understanding of race. And these things, these things matter. I also spoke to Professor Hakeem Adi to understand further the history of anti-racism in Britain in the early 20th century, as well as the history of Pan-Africanism. He is currently the professor of the history of Africa and the African diaspora at Chichester University. Your research covers the fascinating histories of Pan-Africanism in the UK. Would you be able to explain what that is and what relevance it has to anti-racism? Pan-Africanism is a an idea and a movement connected with the liberation of Africa and Afri Africans. Um, it's, it's, I guess, mainly concerned with the, the need for the unity of people of African descent in order to address the particular challenges that face them or have faced them historically so um for example in the in the 18th century in britain we have an organization like the sons of africa which involved people like alado equiano and so on so we can say that was a pan-african organization it included 
people from different parts of the African continent joining together to address the particular problems that faced them in Britain at that time. Yeah, so one of the main problems that faced them at that time was the problem of human trafficking and slavery. So they joined together, united in order to address that problem. And um, late, later on, we find people who referred to themselves as Pan-Africanists, who organized Pan-African conferences like the conference in 1900 in London, where again, Africans, people of African heritage got together to address particular problems of colonialism and of course of racism, of the fact that in Britain and throughout much of the world, Africans were considered inferior to Europeans, uh, so inferior that they needed to be ruled by Europeans. So Pan-African organizations uh, existed to try and deal with that problem, to fight against that problem, and to unite Africans and people of African descent to, to address it. And you allude to this history of the early 20th century in which organizations like the Nigerian Progress Union and the West African Students Union were doing this sort of work and working in the as part of the Pan-African movement. Would you be able to describe their activities um, and what they were struggling against and for? Yeah, so these organizations existed from the 1920s onwards, the Nigerian Progress Union first, and then the West African Students Union from around 1925 up until the 1950s, late 1950s. If we take West African Students Union, because it's the, it's an easier organization to, to describe and explain. So that included Africans, mainly students from Britain's four colonies in West Africa, Nigeria, the Gold Coast, Gambia, and Sierra Leone, addressing the particular problems which they faced in Britain as well as in West Africa. So one of the main problems they faced in Britain was the problem of the colour bar, the fact that racism was legal in Britain at that time. And there was a colour bar which meant that if you were a person of colour, an African, you might find it very difficult to find accommodation. You might be refused entry into a hotel. You might be refused entry into a pub. Um, you might be refused entry into the armed forces. You would not be allowed to, for example, to box for a British championship. All of these aspects of racism, and of course there are many others, the use of the N-word by politicians in speeches and so on, and other manifestations at that time. There were empire exhibitions at Wembley in which Africans were uh, exhibited. So all of these kinds of things and many others, West African Students Union, Nigerian Progress Union, and other organizations campaigned against, fought against, organized against, protested to the government, whatever it might be, um, in order to deal with those particular problems. I'm fascinated by this notion that this was both a movement that existed at home, dealing with issues in relation to racism in Britain, 
but also was very much about that anti-imperialist and anti-colonial struggle as well. How did these movements connect those two things? Well, because those two things were connected. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, you could say that racism was the the consequence, let's say, of colonial rule, just as it was the consequence of human trafficking and, and slavery. So the, the powers that be have a an ideology to explain what is going on in the world. We are ruling Africa because Africans are inferior. We need to train them to govern themselves. We need to look after their economic resources and use them for the benefit of mankind or humanity because Africans can't do these things for themselves. So that meant that Africans were second-class citizens in their own countries, for example, and and the color bar existed in Nigeria and in various other places. So... Um, the fact that there was colonial rule, Africans who were in Britain came to the the belly of the beast, the heart of the empire, and protested against it. They said, well, hang on a minute, you're saying you're educating us, but we're at Oxford, we're at Cambridge, we're at LSE, we've been educated, so why shouldn't we be ruling ourselves? Um, And so on and so forth. And then they recognised that when they came here, they might be, you know, a barrister or whatever, but they're walking down the street and they're abused or they're refused admission into a hotel or they're whatever it is. So they become even more conscious that colonial rule is what is fueling, if you like, racism, Eurocentrism, ignorance and so on, and they have to fight against that as well. So that's the kind of activities they took up. And... To use the West African Students' Union as an example, not only did they have branches in Britain, they had branches in West Africa as well. And so they they had their publications and their methods of communication where they united people in Britain as well as in West Africa against racism and against colonial rule. And just to give one example, they even had their own parliamentary committee where if something happened in in Lagos or Accra today, somebody would send a telegram to London. In London, they'd organise some MPs and they'd ask ask a question to the colonial secretary. What's going on? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? So so they were very effective in that anti-colonial activity. And of course, also very important, educating people in Britain about Africa, about Africans, about history and culture, but most importantly about political aspirations, political demands too. So it sounds like these organisations were themselves having huge influence in West Africa too. So, I mean, they were movers and shakers not only in Britain, but also in terms of that deep embedded connection within the anti-colonial struggle. Um, would you be able to explain a bit more about how that manifested itself? Well, as I, as I was saying, they um, set up organisations throughout the colonies. So if they... Um, and they would discuss all of these issues. Um, so they would encourage people in West Africa, for example, to you know, to 
take up a particular issue or to um, demand a, demand some change or or something of this sort. And we have to remember that these are the same people. Um, you know, it's a way that we think about history that people are in one location or another location, but they're all they're still Africans, whether they're in London or in, they're in Nigeria. So they're organizing accordingly. And we have to recall that many of those who were here then became, went back to West Africa and became, you know, future leaders. So the obvious example is somebody like Kwame Nkrumah, who was here, was uh, the vice president of the West African Students' Union, was a very active pan-Africanist with other organizations here, and was also an organizer in in obviously, and uh, anti-colonial activist in um, in West Africa. Or to give another example, <clears throat> in 1945, there was a general strike in Nigeria. Well, of course, those people who were here organised in support of that general strike, called meetings at you know Conway Hall, um, contacted people in the political organisations here, lobbied governments, demonstrated, and so on and so forth. So this is a the fact that people are in Britain doesn't detach them from Africa. And it's worth pointing out that an organization like the West African Students' Union also had its contacts in the Caribbean, in the US, in Brazil, in all sorts of places. Um, and in Africa, also outside West Africa. So they could be involved in a variety of activities. You know, in the 1930s, they would have been protesting against the fascist invasion of Ethiopia, Abyssinia. Um, or they, you know, they, those, they'd be protesting about various laws that were enacted in West Africa, or people who fell foul of these laws in West Africa might come to Britain and organize. Um, or on occasions, delegations came from West Africa complaining about things, and then they'd actually organize during the general election here to attack the colonial secretary or a particular MP and so on. So they were, you know, highly organized um, because these were important, almost like life and death uh, questions. And as we discussed before, this kind of, organizing goes back to the the 18th century even before but particularly 18th century and in the 18th century you have africans like equiano playing this very important role but they're playing it in the midst of you know a mass movement that takes is you know massive probably the biggest political movement ever in britain's history is the anti-racist movement or we can say the anti-slavery anti-human trafficking movement like millions of people involved in it with Africans playing a, a leading role. So it's a very important part of Britain's history that somehow gets, well, not somehow, for very obvious reasons, gets hidden, gets neglected, because it's, um, it tells us something very important about Britain, and it's not the, the history, not the narrative of the white men of property. I mean, this is something that we are really keen to explore as part of this podcast, to really get into those hidden parts of history, uh, which, as you say, have been hidden for a reason. Um, And I'm so fascinated by uh, the sort of description of the anti-racist organizing that you say 
was not just going on in the 20th century, but has been going on for centuries. Um, and I'd be really interested to hear more about what was happening in the 18th century around these anti-racist movements uh, that enabled them to be organized in this way. Well, I think, I mean, in the 18th century, we have, um, you know, slavery is a, uh, an enslavement is a fact of British life. I mean, and that's what's important to, to recognize. It's not something that happens just in, you know, North America or in the Caribbean. It's happening here in Britain. So people are being bought and sold in Britain. You know, today people go to, you know, coffee houses for whatever reason, they go. In the 18th century, one reason people might go to a coffee house would be to buy an African um, and buy other things. So Africans were auctioned along with other goods, um, children, men, women, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, Africans liberated themselves from that enslavement by taking action, by running away, by demanding wages for their work and so on. In the course of that activity, of obviously, they came into contact with the majority population. How could they not? And we know from what was said at the time that the particularly the workers, supported them. And, and in fact, the, the, the racists complain that well, we don't want to bring all these Africans here because as soon as we bring them here, they get, in, they get involved with all these, uh, you know, common people who encourage them to liberate themselves and give them all kinds of ideas about liberty and all, what, all these kinds of things. So we know that happened. And... Throughout the century, there are examples of, you know, people in Britain acting on behalf of Africans in various ways, you know, encouraging them or helping them to get baptized or helping them to run away or employing them for wages or complaining about auctions or various other things until we get to, uh, and of course we have various intellectuals writing about these things, saying, well, what is this idea that Africans are inferior? This is obviously nonsense. Um, and it's anti-Christian. Because if God made all these human beings, how can somebody come along and say that some human beings are inferior to others? This is like blasphemous, and anti-Christian and so on, or various other positions that people adopted. So by the end of the 18th century, for reasons I won't go into now, you have this kind of mass movement in Britain against human trafficking and slavery, where for the first time, you know, women are involved in national politics, working people are involved, um, people signing petitions, you know, millions of people signing petitions, people boycotting sugar in their tea and coffee, um, meetings being held up and down the country at which Africans speak. People like Equiano toured the country speaking, speaking about his book, his experiences, and so on and so forth. And what we know about that from the most advanced of those organizations is that they're, they're politics. So, for example, you have an organization like the London Corresponding Society, which is an early 
radical organization, of which, by strange coincidence, Equiano was a member. And not only, not only was he a member, he lived with the secretary of that organization in London, Thomas Hardy. So when Thomas Hardy's trying to start his this London Corresponding Society, which is basically putting people in touch with each other about the key issues of the day, he writes to somebody and he says, oh, I understand that you are, uh, yeah, I'm paraphrasing what he says, he says, I understand that you're a supporter of the rights of Africans. I therefore assume that you're also a supporter of the rights of man, as they said there, in other words, human rights. Because if you're a supporter of the rights of one people, you must necessarily be a supporter of the rights of all. So this political perspective of fighting for the rights of all, being concerned about the rights of all in the 18th century, is in many ways more advanced than the conception that people have today. So this was very much a part of British history, we can say, that you are concerned about the rights of all. If you're concerned that working people in Britain don't have the right to vote, don't have the rights that people didn't enjoy at that time, then you'll support the struggle for the rights of Africans. If you're concerned about the struggle of the rights of Africans, then you'll also struggle for the rights of working people in Britain. So this is a very simple idea, but as I say, a very profound and advanced politics. But that was how people saw things in the 18th century. And that concern for um, rights of Africans continued into the 19th century, where you see again um, all kinds of struggles and again millions of people being involved in anti-slavery societies and uh, to, the, to the degree where people, some people complained and said, well, people are too concerned about this anti-slavery business. What about the rights of people in Britain and so on? So this is all part of this tradition, um, this history, which, um, you know, is very often hidden away. And you mentioned um, Equiano as well, and his story and the significance that he has in as an abolitionist is something that is often not talked about when we think about what happened in the 18th century. And I'd love to hear more about his history, who he was, and how he came to have this prominence and this uh, be able to articulate um, the needs of this movement so well. Well, he was... Uh we can say born in the middle of the 18th century, probably about 1757 in, in what is today Nigeria. He was kidnapped as a child along with his sister, separated and then brought to the Caribbean and, and to also to North America where he was enslaved. He eventually managed to free himself, bought his own freedom and ended up in Britain, in London. Uh, which is the kind of short, short version of his life. And he, along with others, began to uh, you know, write to the press uh, on issues of slavery, human trafficking, anti-racism, and then joined with others in an organization called the Sons of Africa, which, again, 
was a group of Africans who uh, wrote to some MPs who lobbied, who wrote in the press and uh, uh, clearly organized together. Um, and his most significant contribution is the writing of his autobiography, the interesting narrative of uh, Gustavus Vassa, uh, which was uh, his slave name, which was published in the 1780s and became a, a bestseller. Um, it was subsequently published in, in other languages. So why was it a bestseller, you could say? Well, it was a bestseller because it kind of spoke to the needs of that time, which were that, okay, you had this abolitionist movement, but you didn't necessarily have the voice of Africans in that movement. So he gave voice, or he was a voice, he wasn't alone because others like Otabel Guano and others had written, had also written, but his what became the most famous narrative. And one of the key things about this narrative is that, as I say, it provides a voice that, yes, Africans are human, are as human as Europeans. Um, and here, to prove it is a book written by an African, I am the African, this is what I've experienced, these are my thoughts, and so on and so forth. So that was very important. And there were other African writers who uh, were also prominent during that period, like Ignatius Sancho and Otabaco Guano and others. Um, one of the key things about Equiano's book is that at the very beginning of it, he takes up the question of racism and Eurocentrism by giving his reader a picture of Africa. What was it like to live in Africa? And he presents... Uh, you know, a very cleverly constructed picture of an African society, which is much more, you could say, it's more advanced than Britain. It's cleaner than Britain. People wash. It's more moral than Britain. It has laws. It has, you know, it has all the things that society should have. So by presenting this picture, he's attempting to undermine the kind of racist views which were presented at that time as a justification for slavery, that slavery was, you know, better than life in Africa and all these kind of things. So that's very, very important um, to say about him and a very important role that the book played and that, that he and others played by speaking up as Africans and saying, this is our view, this is what we think, um, and condemning the the slavery and human trafficking of that of that period. And you mentioned this earlier, but these movements all have links and these figures all have links with each other. So I, I would be really interested in hearing how, how you articulate that in relation to the links between uh, the amazing work of someone like Equiano to the later Pan-Africanist movement. And of course the anti-racist work that happened post-1945 as well. Um, how do you see these movements feeding onto each other and sort of passing onto each other as, yeah, as their connections kind of hold throughout generations? Well, they're all part of one struggle, we, we could say, in the sense that 
the, the anti-racist struggle in Britain continues. Um, it, it assumes different features at different times. So in the 18th century has a character, the 19th century is slightly different. 20th century, early 20th century, different. Uh, obviously, particularly because racism was legal. After 1965, uh, racism becomes less legal, we can say. And so the struggle assumes a different character at that time um, and continues, as we, we see with, you know, with Black Lives Matter and with, you know, even more recent protests. I mean, what, what you could say... The, the other thing about this struggle is that, um, you know, as people say, there's one humanity, so there's one struggle. Um, and therefore, as I said earlier, if you're concerned with the rights of Africans, you're concerned with the rights of all, that immediately links you to, <clears throat> um, you know, you may be a, a pan-African in the sense that you are particularly concerned to organize amongst Africans and people of African descent. But at the same time, you're in Britain. So you have to be concerned with the struggles that are going on in Britain, with educating other people in Britain. And that's always been, particularly in the 20th century, a key aspect of the, the Pan-African movement that many of the, the meetings, publications and activities were concerned with educating people in Britain, organising alongside people in Britain um, in a common struggle. Because this is a podcast in which we are trying to talk about teaching race and teaching uh, histories of race, migration, and empire. Um, I wanted to ask, your previous work has pointed to the immense history of the African diaspora in Britain, which of course, as we've discussed today, is not limited to the 20th century or the 21st century, but spans thousands of years. Why does it matter that this history and those anti-racist struggles are taught in schools? Well, I think the key thing about history is not that it helps us understand the past. It does help us understand the past, but what's important about history is that it allows us to understand the present. It, it gives us a way of understanding the world in which we live. So if we are given, are presented with a distorted view of things, um, then it's it's you could say it's being done in order to to create confusion about the world and to not give us a kind of a kind of vantage point that we need in order to engage in um, those activities to to advance our interests. I mean, to give one very obvious example, if you're presented with a history which is all about the white men of property, you might come to the conclusion that everybody else isn't very important in history. Um, but in fact, if you, you look at history, obviously the majority of people are those that are the, the agents of change in history. It's not the white men of property that have done anything very important. So ju just looking at it from that perspective is provides a, a, a great distortion of things. And then if one looks into specific examples, then again, it's, it's very important to, to, to help us understand um, the world in which we live. Again, if you you spread all kinds of racist ideas around, it has 
you know, it has a very significant impact on the world, how people see the world, how they act in the world, who they consider to be their, um, you know, their enemies, you could say. So that that's very important. So I think that to have a history which includes everybody, uh, which includes women, which includes workers, which includes people from Africa or from Asia or from wherever, um, which presents everything in its entirety and which allows us to understand the world in which we live. And our, our role in the world is, you know, crucial, um, you know, particularly for young people growing up in these very troubled times. You, you, you need to have something which allows you to find your place and to give you an orientation in the world. And I think for that reason, you know, history is, is very important. Thank you for listening to the Runnymede Trust's Teaching Race Matters podcast. The Our Migration Story website, a collaboration with the universities of Manchester and Cambridge, contains more details about this area of history and provides resources on how to teach it in school classrooms. It can be found on the Runnymede Trust website.